Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. The ABA, or American Birding Association, is trying really hard to make the birding community a welcome place to people interested in birds and bird watching who may vary considerably in their birding interests and activities. Birding is an activity that almost anyone with an interest can enjoy. Just on the podcast, I've had guests who are primarily interested in backyard birding and bird feeding, and on the other extreme, on my last episode, I have the Stoll Brothers from Tennessee who just completed a record-breaking Lore 48 big year in 2022. That said, many birders are listers. We keep track of the birds we see. We keep lists of which birds and how many different species we see in all sorts of different areas. For some of us, it's primarily our home county or our state. Others, it may be a major birding area, like the American Birding Association area. I have friends who keep track of their birds seen above a certain elevation in Washington, others in Mount Rainier National Park, and of course in their yard, however they define their yard. Many of us also have a world list, meaning a list of all the species of birds we've seen anywhere in the whole world. Over the course of a lifetime of birding, if you travel internationally and bird when you travel, it's possible to see a lot of species. Using the Clements list, which is a list used by eBird, there are about 10,748 species of birds in the world. The IOC list checklist is, has a little different definition of species, and there are 10,933 species on their checklist. For perspective, there are 29 birders who use eBird and have listed over 7,000 species on the eBird site. iGoTerra is a different site used a lot for international birding, and there are over there are 50 or so listing over 7,000 species on iGoTerra, and that uses the IOC checklist, and eight who've seen over 9,000 species. My guest today is Peter Kastner. He's a guide I met on my recent Antarctica trip, and he has seen over 9,700 species using the IOC checklist. That's just an amazing number. That's only missing about 1,000 or 1,200 birds in the whole world. His birding story and his life story are pretty fascinating. I hope you enjoy hearing part of his story and some of his stories on the Bird Banner Podcast number 146. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on with me. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk with you. When I uh, met you on the boat, uh, I was, uh, you know, amazed uh, that uh, you just seem like a normal guy, uh, the biggest <laughs> lister in the whole world uh, who's traveled everywhere and sat down to dinner with you. It was just a nice time to chat with you and your wife. It was really fun. Well, it's, uh, I, I do try to very hard to be a normal person. That's, that's a good thing. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, that, that's a good start. Anyway, Peter, you have, uh, you have spent a lifetime birding. Uh, so sort of lay out how you got started in birding and how, you, how this quest for this gigantic world list uh, came to be. Boy, that's a really good question. The first part of your question is very easy. Um, I got started because of my brother, my brother Hank, who is also one of the top e-birders in the world. Um, is eight years older than I, and he got started in birding when he was 10 years old. I was two at the time, and he remembers his spark bird, which is a vermilion flycatcher that he saw in Mexico City when he's visiting my grandparents. And he still has, there's a fantastic story. You'll need to ask him about it someday. He'd be, he's a wonderful guest for you because uh, he does have some amazing stories. Anyway, so Hank started when I was very young and I adored my older brother when I was young. I still adore him. He's a great guy and a fabulous birder. And uh, fortunately, I was mentored by the best. And uh, Hank is, is a very, very accomplished uh, birder, but he's also very competitive. And our family was very, very competitive as we were growing up. Indeed, my brother Hank is in the lacrosse hall of fame as one of the very best lacrosse players to ever have played the game, as is my father. Wow. Um, and so competition was a big thing in our family. Um, and I think part of it, I was just, it was funny, I was just doing a, an interview for an Argentine magazine, uh, Aves Argentinas, and they asked me, what, what is it about me that makes me a successful birder? And the bottom line really is my passion. I love birds. I love seeing birds. I love studying birds. I love the mystery of birds. I love that birds 
can fly around the world and get to where they're going, and we have no idea how they do it. I love the fact that they can fly. I love the fact that they're beautiful. I love the fact that that they are very likely dinosaurs. I mean, there is nothing about birds that I don't love. And that passion is really what has driven me. I love seeing new birds, but I love seeing old birds. And I used to walk to work in, in Frankfurt, Germany, and there would be a European robin that sang on part of my walk every day. And it didn't sing every day, but almost every time it was singing, I'd stop for a few minutes and listen to that extraordinary ethereal song from the European robin. And somebody asked me once, he said, you know, you hear that almost every day. Why do you stop and listen to it? And it, it, it was no more miraculous and beautiful on the 50th time I heard it than it was the first time I heard it. And that that's the kind of passion that drives me every single day. Well, that's uh, extraordinary. I have to say, I think most birders have a passion for birds in one sort or another, but it sounds like yours is really all-encompassing. That's fun to hear. You've been uh, traveling, obviously, your whole adult life, really. You were, you were a diplomat. Tell me, what, what does that mean and, and how did that work? That's a real good question. Being a diplomat means working for the Department of State, and the Department of State has... Uh, some 270 or so overseas posts that are staffed by diplomats and support staff. There are two kinds of support staff. There are um, local support staff and U.S.-based support staff. So there are really sort of three cohorts that are working in each embassy and consulate. Uh, to become a diplomat, basically, you have to pass an exam that's given by the State Department Back in 1978, when I took it, it was given once a year in early December. And it's given, uh, back then, it was given at U.S. embassies around the world. And I was coming back from a Peace Corps stint in what is now the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, a wonderful place for birds. And I took the test in the U.S. embassy in Dakar, Senegal. And... I managed to pass the test on the first time. And after a year and a half of processing paperwork, I was finally invited to join the Foreign Service in June of 1980. And I was in the Foreign Service until the end of August of 2016, so 36 years wow. and change. And I got to, to live and work in places all around the world, from Papua New Guinea to India to Afghanistan to Brazil to Colombia, Guatemala, Germany, uh, Malaysia, Solomon Islands, uh, really a, a fantastic experience. And apart from the opportunity to live and travel overseas, I got to represent the United States which was a, a, a truly unbelievable honor. I mean, to, to, to stand there, there were times when I was, was in tears with the honor of, of representing my country uh, at various times where, where people look at you as the embodiment of the greatest country in the world. It's, it's very emotional. It sounds like it. And it, it sounds like from some of the stories you told on your lecture talk on the boat, that it gave you kind of license to get to places sometimes. I mean, from just, you know, birding opportunities. Sure. Yeah. yeah the, the, the foreign service and I had a very symbiotic relationship. Uh, most of the people that join the foreign service do it as uh, experts in some area. Maybe they studied uh, Latin American history or, uh, foreign affairs at Georgetown or something like that. And those people would prefer to live in places of, of import and, and places that are, that are interesting and fun to live in, places like Paris and, and Ber uh, Berlin, Germany, um, uh, Moscow, Mexico City, places like that. But my primary reason for joining the Foreign Service was to see birds. So I was very happy to live in places like Papua New Guinea and Colombia 
um, in Afghanistan that were not really hotspots for your run-of-the-mill diplomats, but were great places for me. So when the Foreign Service decides where people work, each employee gets to bid on the jobs. So you put in a list of about 10 places and jobs where you'd like to work, a second secretary in the U.S. Embassy in, in uh, Canberra or uh, second secretary, uh, administrative officer at the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait or whatever you want to do. And then the State Department looks at all those, those requests and they try to match the best person for the, for the job. But the kinds of places that I bid on very often were what they call underbid. These are places where your normal uh, foreign service officers were not eager to go. And as a result of that, almost every time that I bid on jobs, I got the place that I wanted on my first or second choice almost every time. And that's a, a, a record that I would bet is very, very rare in the foreign service because most people are bidding on highly bid places, Wellington, New Zealand, Canberra, Paris, France, sure. um, and you might get 60 or 70 officers bidding on the job. When I'm bidding on Papua New Guinea, there's probably two or three people that did it, and maybe only one of them that was serious, me. So it's very easy to get my my positions. Very cool. Yeah, so it uh, sounds like you had the, the perfect job for a world lister. And it sounds like you've got another pretty good part-time gig as a world lister working for Rock Jumper. Yeah, that's an interesting story because I was the deputy ambassador, what we call deputy chief of mission in the U.S. Embassy in Windhoek, Namibia in uh, 2000, or 1996 to 1999. And I uh, met lots of birders in Southern Africa. A lot of them would, would come up. There was a guy named Fonsi Peacock, who <laughs> at the time was, was a preteen. I think he was 13, 14 years old. Um, and his parents brought him up to Namibia and they, they came by the house. I believe they stayed with us, although I could be mistaken. But I remember meeting him and, and looking at his drawings and he would sketch birds in the field. This child was just extraordinary. And he is now a very uh, successful book publisher in South Africa. And he's has written several books and illustrated them himself and uh, publishes themselves and is, is doing very, very well. So it was not a surprise at all. Another of the, the South African birders that I met was a guy named Adam Riley, who is a extraordinary human being. And I remember sitting and talking with him about the possibility of uh, creating a bird tour company someday, which is a dream of his. And shortly after that, he did create a bird tour company called Rock Jumper, which is arguably the most successful international bird tour company in the world. And while I was working for the State Department, I couldn't have an outside gig as a, a, a bird tour guide. But as soon as I retired, I started thinking about how I would do that. And when I reached out to, to Adam, he was very excited about me working for Rock Jumper. And now I am a part-time Rock Jumper guide. And uh, as you know, I just came back from three back-to-back-to-back rock jumper tours in Argentina, Antarctica, and then Argentina. Very cool. It makes me think, do you, I've I've kind of fantasized that maybe you uh, say, gosh, you know, I've got this place with some birds I really want to get on my list. Maybe I can get rock jumper to send a group there that I can lead and see these birds and and lead (laughs) a trip there. Is Is it sort of like that or is it... Uh, a little less. In, in uh, fact, a little less. Uh, in fact, it's just the opposite. Oh, really? It's exactly the opposite. I just got an email from Rock Jumper. I want to say within the last week to ten days, mm-hmm. asking me if I wanted to put together a tour to some place where I needed to go. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done it yet. I'm. They they suggested northeastern India. Uh, and I was in northeastern India in uh, April, mm-hmm. but there's still some parts of northeastern India that would have some birds for me. Right. And it is a it's a real it's a real temptation because mm-hmm. I I I do s- different kinds of birding. Uh, for example, when I'm working with rock jumper, I'm usually in a place where I know pretty well. 
Mm -hmm. And there are very few birds that I need to get that would be lifers for me. As an example, I did three tours for the lockdown, one in Southern India, one in Sri Lanka, and one in Northern India. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, back to back to back. And uh, during that time, I got two lifers um, out of the six or 700 birds we saw. Right. Um, in the the trip to the last trip I did, well, the, you, you'd asked about the boat trip, and we'll talk about that right. later. But the last trip that I did with Rock Jumper, which was a hooded grebe extension, uh, mm-hmm. six days, um, I got one one life bird, and I dipped one. Uh, so those the Rock Jumper tours tend not to be very good at, at getting large numbers of of of, uh, of lifers. But it is a nice way to do it. I, I love leading tours and I, I don't do it for the lifers. I don't really do it for the salary, although it's, I mean, getting paid for what you do is, is, is nice. But the thing that I enjoy the most is sharing my passion with people and showing them birds. And it's interesting, something I realized when I was in Argentina is one of the things that I enjoy about it is the pressure. Because when you're a bird tour leader, especially for a company like Rock Jumper, mm-hmm. people expect you to come up with the birds. And there are very few people that are going to, to accept any excuses. They want to get the birds and they expect that the leader to come up with them unless it's you know an act of God or some gruesome, horrible weather or something. <laughs> uh, they expect you to get them. And I actually enjoy that, that pressure of having to to get the birds and uh, to come up with them. And it's, 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 I don't know, I guess it's part of the whole competition thing. Well, good for you because I've, I've talked to uh, friends who lead local trips, obviously a different level of trip, but it's the same kind of thing. And I lead trips locally and other people do. And, and that's kind of like, Oh gosh, you know, the good thing is we don't get paid. So we joke with ourselves, well, you know, it's all volunteers, you know, if we don't find the birds, that's fine. But God, I'd never want to get paid for this. I'd feel like I had to find the birds. <laughs> and then the, some of these international bird tours are, are very pricey and uh, people are paying their hard earned money uh, and they expect results. And I, I expect results myself. I have very, very high standards for myself. And I want people at the end of the, the tour to, to think that they had the best possible experience. So I'm going to uh, circle back to the Hooded Grebe uh, tour. Uh, I had uh, on, on his guests, uh, oh, a, a year or so ago, Michael and Paula Webster. They did a, they were, they are this couple from, I think they're from Great Britain and they bought a Toyota Land Rover converted into a camper trailer, sort of uh, not a Land Rover, but big, the old big Toyota thing. And they spent five years driving around South America and she's a she's a filmmaker, and she did oh, this fabulous fabulous film called Tango hmm. in the Wind on uh, Hooded Greeds. It's on YouTube, and I'll put a link to that wow. in the podcast notes. But yeah, they uh, they were fun to see. But they had this incredible Hooded Greeb experience. They spent weeks there filming them and stuff. But what was your yeah. Hooded Greeb experience? We had we our Hooded Greeb experience was 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 remarkable, and it was remarkable in an odd way. Um, we, the tour was a six day tour and we had planned to base ourselves at La Estancia La Angostura. It's a wonderful, wonderful place out in the middle of nowhere in Southern Patagonia. And then we were going to drive up to a plateau that was about three hours away on a very rough road and spend the day looking for the bird. Our guide, our local guide, a guy named Pablo Hernandez, is a specialist in the grebe. So the whole six days, his specialty was finding the grebe and knowing where it was. Mm -hmm. And he had said that he had spent a whole day looking for the grebes and had just bumped into two grebes on one lake of all the lakes. I think he said he'd gone to nine different lakes and had finally found them. And he was, was not nearly as optimistic as I was hoping that he would be taking us up there. So when we arrived at the Estancia La Agostura, there uh, was actually a bird on the grounds of the Estancia that was another very, very sought after species called the Austral Rail, which is a critically mm-hmm. endangered bird that was thought to be extinct until I think about 20 years ago. And it was discovered in this area. And we had three opportunities 
to try for this rail. And most people that, that encounter the rail hear it, but don't see it. So I thought that we'd give the rail three chances and, and maybe we would get lucky if we, if we put enough effort into it. In fact, the tour that I led before the, the cruise, we went to Torres del Paine National Park in Chile that also has a Austral rail stakeout. And we heard it there, but never saw it. We tried three times and never saw the bird. So with that experience fresh in my mind, I wanted to give every chance of, of bumping into this Austral rail. So we stopped at a place, um, and again, I, since our local guide was an expert in the grebe, you didn't know that much about the rail. So I found a place that looked like a good place to try for the rail, played the tape, and the bird responded immediately, but from a slightly different area. So we walked about 15 or 20 feet, maybe 30 feet to the left, and got everybody ready and played the tape, and the bird immediately popped out of the marsh. Wow. And I have a, a very strict rule of only playing the tape when it's absolutely necessary. Uh, I'm not going to play a tape so that people can get great photos. When everybody's seen the bird, the tape, the, the bird, we do not disturb the bird anymore. If the bird wants to come out and, and show itself, that's fine. But I'm not going to play the tape until the bird shows for everybody to get fabulous pictures. So if you're a bird picture guy, you might want to go on a different tour. Anyway. So everybody on the, on the tour was happy with this policy and the bird came out and one person had been trying, instead of looking at the, the bird with his binoculars, had been trying to spot the bird in his viewfinder, his camera oh, gosh, yeah. and missed it. So we had the 10 clients, I had nine of them that got the bird and one missed it. So I said, okay, yeah. we'll get, get you front and center and I'll play the tape one more time and see if the bird will come out. So he played the tape again, the minimum for the bird to come out and boom, popped right out, even better views this time. So I immediately stopped and I picked up my camera and tried to get a picture. It was a terrible picture by that time, but he did get a great picture. Everybody saw it and we got wonderful pictures because the bird turned out to be very cooperative. So anyway, we did this before we actually got to the place where we were staying to the Estancia itself. This is on the entrance road. So we arrive at the Estancia itself. And the owner starts talking to Pablo and, and all of a sudden Pablo gets very animated and we're starting to get off of the bus. It's a weird bus. It just has a, a, an entrance and exit in the back of the bus and the straight in the back of the bus. And we're, we're trying to set up to get out of the, and he says, no, no, get back in the bus, get back in the bus. We're, we're going to a lake that's on the Estancia. So we loaded the bus up, turned around and drove maybe 15 or 20 minutes away. And there was a couple that were studying the grebes and they had found a pair of grebes on this lake that is only, I don't know, three or four miles away from this Estancia where we were overnighting. And these birds were not breeding. This is not part of their breeding area, but these birds were migrating going up to the plateau. Mm -hmm. They spend the winter in the ocean and they were flying inland and going up to the plateau. And just by sheer serendipity, this pair of hooded grebes were sitting and the sun was going down and it was just exquisite light on them. And they were sitting, it was very, it's always windy in Patagonia. So the waves are going up and down, these cute little birds are bobbing up and down in the waves. And we all got spectacular views and not great pictures because they were probably 50 yards away or so. And they're just grebes, they're not very large birds but we all saw them just fabulously. Very nice. So anyway, so after that incredible experience. So did you just go home and say, okay, we're we going to call back this trip to the Estancia. <laughs> we went back to the Estancia seeing the two great birds that we, you know, were the targets for the whole trip. And out of the corner of my eye, as we're driving back to the Estancia, I noticed something sitting under a bush. So we slam on the brakes, back the car up, and there is a Magellanic horned owl sitting on the ground underneath of a bush in the middle of this, this step, hiding from the wind. And we all got magnificent views of this other bird that, that was not, I mean, it was a, a target, but if we had missed it, nobody would have complained. It's not, not a bird that anybody really expected to, uh, to see. So it was, it was just an unbelievable couple of hours. And, uh, 
then it, it took all the pressure off because the next day when we, when we took this long, long trip up to the plateau, we didn't have to see the, the uh, grebe. And indeed, we didn't see them. We went to the place where Pablo had seen them the week before, and they were not there. Wow. Uh, but fortunately, we had them under our belt, so we didn't need to get them. Sometimes better lucky than good in that regard. You know, gosh, just uh, yeah. stumbled onto those really quickly. Get, thankfully, the uh, the owner of the resort uh, knew what was up. Obviously, a lot of people who come there are looking for the grebe, so wasn't a foreign yeah. concept to him. Very cool. So, what's next, Peter? Where are you headed from here? You've uh, I know you do rock jumper trips. Are you off on your own? Are you off on more rock jumper work? That's a good question. Um, you have lots of good questions. <laughs> I'm leaving on Wednesday. Today's we're taping this on Thursday. So Wednesday, the 11th of uh, January, I'm going off for about a month in Southern Africa. And uh, I know this is something that you wanted to talk about later. Uh, this is a family trip. Oh, and good for you. I'm going with my wife and daughter and my wife, Kimberly's best friend, Holly, and her son and daughter are coming. So there's six of us and we're going to hire a nine passenger stretch land cruiser. Um, so everybody gets a window and I'm going to be driving them around Namibia for two weeks of uh, safari. Um, I lived in Namibia for three years and I've been back many times since like this will be our sixth trip back. Um, it's my wife's favorite place in the world. So we, we go there quite, quite regularly and there are no birds for me to see. I, I've printed out my eBird checklist of my wants for my Namibia list, but there are very few that are that are possible, um, and I probably won't even get a new uh, country bird while I'm there. But I I love taking taking the family around, and and it's a beautiful place. The animals are wonderful. We love safaris. Uh, the birds are spectacular, so it's it's a great place to go. So after that. Um, on the 28th of January, we're going to leave Namibia and fly to South Africa. And uh, first thing we're going to do is uh, see my old friend Adam Riley in Hilton, KwaZulu-Natal. And then we're going down to Durban to go scuba diving. This is one of the things that my wife and I enjoy doing. And my listing, uh, my, my listing instincts have sort of taken over. And one of the things I'm doing is listing butterfly fish. Oh my goodness. About 120 butterfly fish in the world, and I'm hoping to see 100 of them. Wow. Uh, the reason the other 20 are unlikely is that they're very deep sea fish that, that are found like 100 meters down, 50 to 100 meters, and no way I'm going to see those. But uh, I'm, going, I'm just going crazy about finding different species of butterfly fish that I have not seen. And one of the fun things is it takes me to places that might not be of interest bird wise, but will, will you know get get me a couple of uh, of new butterfly fish. But it also allows another dimension. It's something that my wife and do, enjoys doing. So we can go to a place that might not have a lot of birds. It'll be a, just a couple of birds that would be new for me, and some butterfly fish, and we can do the diving together. Um, and it it puts a few more dimensions to a trip that makes it more uh, enjoyable for my wife. Well, you'll have to talk, you'll have to talk to Adam about, uh, you know, there are lots of wine and, uh, birding trips and a few, you know, eat really good in birding trips. Maybe you can get him to put a diving and birding trip together. I bet, <laughs> I bet you'd get some people to go on that. That's a, that's a possibility. We, uh, Kimberly and I did a wonderful trip through Micronesia where we started in, in the West in Palau and went to Yap, Truk, Ponape, Kosre, Guam, Saipan, Tinian, uh, Rote, and all those places, almost all those places, uh, we would stay for, for two or three days and I would immediately go scuba diving because you need at least 24 hours after you dive before you can fly. And then the last day or so, I would get the endemic birds on the island. And while I was birding, Kimberly would either come with me or sometimes she'll go running if it's a good place for, you know, if I'm birding in a place, it's good for running. And sometimes she would hang out on the on the beach and at the resort. And there are lots of wonderful resorts in Micronesia. So we did that to, I think it's five, five weeks. She ended up in Hawaii and I got almost every 
I got every possible endemic bird, um, did really, really well and had a wonderful time uh, scuba diving. I think we did a total of 30 dives um, all told. And it was a, a wonderful family trip and got to clean up uh, a great part of the world. There are actually quite a few birds in that part of the world when you add them all up. It sounds like you have solved the how do you travel with family and get some birding done problem. You're you know, versatile, interested in other stuff. And uh, and it sounds like Kimberly is pretty good birder on her own. I mean, she, I, my observation was she was not lost in the world of birding. She had a pretty good idea of what was going on. She, she is a very good spotter. And indeed, while we were living in um, our last farm service post in Frankfurt, Germany, Kimberly actually was was a uh, staff officer with the Foreign Service. She was an information officer. And she would run the communications and computers in the embassy. And then I would work in different jobs at the embassy. And she retired when we went to Frankfurt in 2014 for two Mm -hmm. years. Okay. And while she was, while I was working in the winter and Europe can be pretty miserable in the winter. It's sort of not much snow. It's drizzly and dark and wet. She spent two two winters in South Africa taking safari guiding courses. So she actually has a certificate in safari guiding. Wow! And is a really excellent tracker. And uh, we were we were. I remember we were on a safari in India, and Kimberly was was correcting the, the local guide who uh, was mixed up in, in looking at some bear tracks that we were following. And he thought that they were going the opposite way that the bear was actually moving. Um, so she's, she's that good. She, she is an excellent tracker. She is very comfortable around birds. She's not a lister, um, but she loves seeing interesting birds and beautiful birds. She doesn't get excited about uh, rare cysticolas and, and warblers and uh, U.S. warblers, but not old world warblers. Um, so she has she has her her niche as a birder. And, and the ABA says there are a million ways to bird. And I love that about the ABA. Yeah, Everybody can do it their own way. There's a lot of ways to do it. Speaking of doing it, you are a lister, obviously, and you were a lister long before eBird. You know, my records from pre-eBird are pitiful. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I still, I'll, I'll go out with my friend who says, I know I have a mountain quail in Kitsap County, but I don't know when it was, I remember it, but I don't, you know, anyway, so my County listing is suffering from my lack of good records. You have a much you bigger have to challenge. See them again. Yeah. I got to get out again. You have a much bigger challenge, uh, uh, of, of keeping track of things. And I know you, you have a big eBird list, like the biggest eBird list in the whole world. And you use another site. What was it called? I go Terra. I'd never heard of that until I uh, saw your, uh, eBird profile. So that you use that. How did you, from the beginning, how did you keep track of your records and how did you get them digitalized and how do you do it? Okay. In the, in the beginning, there was Peterson. Uh, and the back of the Peterson guide, there's a, a, uh, a checklist where you can put your life list. And I actually have a, an old guide that has about 300 birds in it. Now, of course, it, those 300 birds, it, it just, they're in, I know at that point I had 300, but I didn't know when I got them. So that was, that was the first thing. My first international trip was when I was 10 years old. And my brother Hank took me to West End, Grand Bahama for a day trip. So I have a separate list because they were not Peterson birds. So I have a separate list from that trip of the, the lifers that we got, all the birds that we saw on that trip. Amazingly, just four years after that, when I was 14 and my younger brother Tom was 12, we did an overnight trip, just the two of us, to the Bahamas and stayed in a hotel and went birding and then came back the next day. We flew over. We didn't have passports. We didn't have credit cards. I don't know how we paid for anything. I do have vivid memories of the birds we saw, but I have almost no memories of, of the trip apart from a, an interesting time when we were picked up by a, a good Samaritan that saw us walking into town and stopped. It was the middle of the day. It was horribly hot. And we were walking along with our little suitcases. 
and this guy in a, 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 a convertible car drops up and asks us what we're doing. And I had just seen my life thick build Vireo on the side of the road. So I was very excited. And my little brother, Tom, are talking to the guy and he, he tells us that we've got like 20 miles to walk to get to the town because the airport is on the other side of Nassau, oh my word. Providence Island. And uh, anyway, he ended up giving us a ride into town. I don't know whether he helped us find accommodation or what, whatever happened to that. But my only recollection is that interaction and, and, and having just seen the thick build Vireo. So anyway, so I started at a very young age. When I was 14, I went to India and lived in India for, for 10 months as a uh, ninth grade student in New Delhi. And I had a, a list of the 155 birds that I saw on that trip. It was 145 of them were, were lifers. Then when I came back, I went to a college in 1973. So I was about 20 years old at that point. Uh, my brother, Hank, who worked at McCormick and Company, which is a spice uh, company, the largest spice company in the U.S., he went, was going on a business trip to, um, let's see, Guatemala and Ecuador. And uh, he invited me to come along with him. So I went to Guatemala, Ecuador, and then afterwards I went to Trinidad by myself. So I have a list from all those places. So in 19, gosh, all of this happened in, 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 in threes. In 1993, I remember getting a personal computer and putting all these, oh no, before that, it's 1974, 75, there was a checklist of the birds of the world that was published by Buck Edwards from um, Sweetbriar College. It was a one volume, a tiny little book that had all 8,900 birds in the world. So I transferred all the lists into that. So I finally had them in one, uh, one place. And then after that, I put my, my list into a list from the American Museum of Natural History, which is much more unwieldy, but I really liked it because it had, uh, it had citations for every bird. So you could actually go back and look and, and know what it what what bird it meant and what it where it was and why it had that taxonomy. So I really enjoyed that part of it. The downside of it was it wasn't bound. It was just loose leaf and it only had the scientific names. It was meant as a uh, a list of birds for museums to keep track of their their specimens. So anyway, I used that for many years. And then in 1993, I got a personal computer and a software called BirdBase. So from 1993 to about 2010, I think, I put all my data into BirdBase. And the problem with BirdBase, the nice thing about BirdBase had lots of nice things about it, but it was run by a single guy as Santa Barbara Software. And he retired around 19, uh, 2010. And so the, the, the software wasn't being updated and taxonomies weren't being included, the new, new splits and things. So at that point, I moved over to eBird and I moved everything from BirdBase into eBird. I had 110,000 records in BirdBase. Um, and it took almost a year to move it all in. The, the people at eBird were very, very helpful. Um, and I was able to, to build up my, my life list. I didn't do all, all the county data, except for Maryland and Baltimore County, my home county here. Um, but I did put in data for every state in the U.S. and for every country. Wow. So, and so, so my, my, eBird, my bird-based data was, was aggregated by country, which is fairly easy. Mm -hmm. But there are some countries, for example, Bolivia, I did a... Uh, a trip with a guy named uh, Paul Koopmans, who is a, a, a superb birder, a young Belgian birder that I knew when I lived in Bogota. We went down there for a couple of weeks and did really, really well. So I aggregated all that two-week data into one uh, checklist or life list building checklist in eBird. Uh, you can do it with a 1 January 1900 date, and then eBird recognizes it as a a list building checklist and it doesn't go into the scientific data. Mm -hmm. 
So I did that a total, I have 83 checklists like that in, in, the, in the database, which I hope to clean up at someday, most of them. So anyway, the issue with eBird is that they use a, uh, the, the granddaughter of Clements. Uh, Clements, mm-hmm. Jim Clements was a right. guy that did a, a, a very famous uh, world bird checklist. And the uh, Cornell University has taken that over and they update the Clements list uh, every year. And the Clements checklist is very conservative. And there is a, a process now that will change that. But as of today, the Clements list, if I count up the birds I've seen in Clements mm-hmm. and I count up the birds that I've seen in the International Ornithological Congress list, the IOC list, Right. I have just about 200 fewer birds in Clements than I do under IOC. Interesting. So that number is, 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 is going down. Uh, six mm-hmm. months ago, the difference was about 210 or 215, and now it's a little under 200. The two lists are harmonizing, they're coming together, and there is a goal in the next several years of having one list, which would be wonderful. But right now, if I count my birds in the IOC, I get around to almost 200 more. So how do you get, how do you, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you count them in the IOC? Right. And to do that, you can't do it in eBird because eBird only has one taxonomy. Mm-hmm. But I, I go Terra, you can toggle between two taxonomies. Oh. You can do you can have your list in Igoterra as a eBird or Clements list, and you could also do it as an IOC list. So what I do is I downloaded my all my data from eBird into Igoterra, mm-hmm. which is a another gigantic, gigantic <laughs> job. Yeah. And now every time when I go off on trips, or, or not every trip, but usually about three or four times a year, I will download all my data from from um, from eBird and you can, you can download your data from eBird anytime you want. And then I send it over to Sweden and they upload the new records into my, my iGoTerra account. And one of the nice things about iGoTerra is their customer service is extraordinary. Uh, eBird has almost 800,000 people and they treat customers like they're 800,000 of them. Mm-hmm. Igoterra is a, a fee-based uh, business. Their premium service, which I get, is $60, 60, 63 or $60 a year. They, they put a lot of time and effort into making sure that my data gets uploaded. You've got both checklists covered and uh, great lists. Cool for you. So, Peter, I'm going to just uh, ask a little bit about your Antarctic trip. I know I, I remember hearing uh, that there were some lifers for you on that trip. Yeah. I had had been I've been in the Southern Oceans. Uh, this was my third trip to the Southern Oceans. So none of the seabirds uh, were were pelagic birds were new for me. Even the the Atlantic petrel, which everybody was so excited about seeing, mm-hmm. uh, I had seen in two thousand two, and the emperor penguin, uh, which is the other. And the Antarctic penguin, the three real great birds of the trip, the Antarctic penguin, Atlantic penguin, and emperor penguin, I had all seen in 2002 on a trip out of Cape Town. Mm-hmm. But I had never been to those islands before. So the birds that were endemic to the islands that we're uh, visiting were all lifers for me. So on uh, the Falkland Islands, there are four birds, and two of them are strictly endemic, which are the Cobbs wren and the Falklands flightless steamer duck. Mm-hmm. And there are two other birds that are essentially endemic because they, even though they're found in far Southern South America, almost nobody ever sees them there. One was the white bridled finch and the other was the striated caracara. Mm-hmm. And on South Georgia, there's an endemic shag down there called the South Georgia shag or cormorant. And then there's also an endemic pipit, which is a very unusual bird, the South Georgia pipit. So those two are lifers for me. And then on the Antarctic Peninsula, there's another shag, the Antarctic shag or Antarctic cormorant, which is also new for me. So on the trip, I got four, two, and one, or a total of seven lifers. So, so again, it's a, it's, a, it's a great place to go as, uh, as, a, as a guide working. 
or to go with my wife. And, and I must say that the trip is, was absolutely extraordinary in so many different ways. But as, as a, a lifer jackpot, it wasn't. No? Well, I'm, I'm guessing there aren't too many lifer jackpots left for you. Uh, I mean, there are. I think there, there are. are. Where are they? <laughs> there are. And I'm planning to spend the month of March in Vietnam. And I'm hoping to get between 40 and 50 lifers in one month. Wow. wow. After Vietnam, I'm planning to spend about a month in the Philippines. Uh, the first 10 or two weeks or so are going to be with my wife, Kimberly. She's coming off and we're going to visit Palawan, where I've been before uh, and only has a handful of, of potential lifers. But there's some interesting birds, a peacock pheasant, which would be great for Kimberly. Uh, there's an endemic cockatoo there. Um, so I think Kimberly would, would enjoy that. And then we're going to do a one week uh, dive cruise to a place called Tuba Taha, which is a fabulous dive destination in the middle of the Sulu Sea. So we'll do that for a week. And then we're going up to a place north of Palawan, northeast of Palawan, a ta- uh, an island that has dugongs. And my wife is Kimberly has always wanted to see a dugong. She loves manatees. We've had some wonderful encounters with manatees and she really wants to see a dugong. I want to see a dugong too. So we're going to look for dugongs and then I'm going to do a tour of remote islands in the Philippines. I've been to the Philippines three or four times, but we're going to the unusual places, Mindoro, Negros, Tablas, uh, that have also have endemic birds. And I'm hoping to get north of 50 lifers in that month. So between those two trips, I I could end up with almost 100 new birds. Wow. That's a bonanza. That is a bonanza. So there are parts of the world that Peter Kastner has not been to. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, the, the Vietnam, I, I actually went there on a, on a business trip, but uh, it was a, an odd time. We didn't have diplomatic uh, relations with uh, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't stay and do any birding. I had to get in. As soon as my business was done, I hopped on the next plane and got out. So I got a couple of birds in the park, but uh, it's really, it's, it's, it's a virgin territory for me. Good for you, Peter. I, uh, as I am not a world lister at all, but I am seeking out spectacles, you know, birding spectacles by that. I mean, you know, crazy things like the king penguin colony at south georgia i'd call that a birding spectacle you know just like an amazing yeah. experience with birds what are some of the the best birding spectacles you would recommend to me oh gosh um there's so many of them and you know one of the one of the things that i did very early in my life uh, that i'd mentioned earlier at the end of the trip with my brother i went off to trinidad for a couple of days by myself mm-hmm. And one of the, the birding spectacles in the world is in Trinidad. And those are the roosting scarlet ibis that come in at the end of the day and at the Caroni Swamp. And it is, it is one of the most amazing things. I, I still is etched in my mind, even though I was, was only, what, 20 years old at the time. And it was just, just extraordinary. Uh, so that, that certainly is one of them. The sandhill cranes at Bosque del Apache uh, in the winter is another sure. one. On the eastern shore of Maryland, I'm, I'm talking to you from Baltimore, and we have tremendous numbers of geese that winter in, in the eastern shore of Maryland, and there are several places where you can see them. And there's something, it's, it's sort of like a fallout that you get on the Texas coast in that it's hard to know exactly when it's going to happen. But um, on a couple of occasions, I've managed to see the departure of the geese. And I remember one day I was traveling across the Bay Bridge, which crosses the Chesapeake Bay towards the eastern shore. At dawn, the sun was coming up and there was a light on the horizon, but Mm -hmm. the sun had not risen yet. This was in the winter. Uh, I guess it was been the second week of March or so. Maybe not really winter, but anyway, the sun was just about to come up. And the sky was full of geese. There must have been 100,000 birds in the, in the sky from one horizon to the other, just lines and lines and lines of geese taking off, all flying at once. And it's remarkable that these birds 
will come down and they don't arrive in one group. They, they arrive sort of in groups, you know, several hundred at a time, but they take off by the hundred thousand. And it is, it is truly a spectacle that I, I've, I've heard very little about it. And, and it's maybe it's something that just people on the Eastern shore of Maryland know about. The hunters know all about it. And I have a brother, John, that lives there. And he, you know, he'll call me and say, hey, the, the geese left yesterday. Or he'll call me very excitedly and say, the geese are flying this morning. Very cool. Pheasants in, in China are, are truly amazing. Uh, it takes some, some getting, some, some doing to get there to see them. The birds of paradise in, in the island of New Guinea, either on the Papuan side in Indonesia or on the, on the New Guinea side, the Papua New Guinea side, they are, are truly, truly spectacular. So many places, so many birds. So many places, so many birds. Exactly. Can't wait to get to see some of them. Peter, that's really cool. Uh, I, uh, I really appreciate you being on with me today. Do you have any uh, words of wisdom, things you wanted to uh, pass on to people? And I also want to make sure people know how to get a hold of you, uh, what the best way to contact you is, if you'd like to share that. Well, the, the the best way to get a hold of me is through eBird. I have my 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 I think my phone number and my email address and my profile on eBird. Okay. Um, I'll put a link my, to your profile. My, that's easy. Yeah, that's that's probably the easiest way to do it. And and that way, if it if it ever changes, it'll it'll be there. Words of wisdom. I I, I guess probably the the best thing is is what the ABA says: be true to yourself and don't. Don't try to, uh, to, to emulate other people, but find out which one of those one million ways to bird that, that is your way and enjoy it. Uh, birds are, are, are so fabulous and so amazing that there is a way for everybody to then enjoy them, whether it's studying them, writing about them, lecturing about them, uh, twitching them or counting them or just sitting and watching them out your your back door enjoy them there it is it is a a a true miracle of nature and it's just so much to be thankful for and and i just hope that everybody can enjoy them in their own way well peter it's so fun to talk to somebody with a passion above passions i appreciate it thank you for doing this with me and uh good birding thank you so much it's been a real pleasure well Seeing as many birds and as many places and having the experiences Peter's had is pretty damn cool. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For the next episode, we'll get away from listing and hear from a birder who, in addition to his birding passion, has a passion for the people and especially the children of Nepal, who live in some of the highest elevation villages on earth. Come back in a couple of weeks to learn more. Until next time, good birding and good day.